Hi, everybody. Let's put that there. There it is. Hello. It is the uh, 18th of November, 2021. This is episode 95 of the Luke Thomas Live Chat. Thank you so much for watching. Greatly appreciate it. My name, of course, is Luke Thomas. You might know me from Showtime or CBS Sports, but uh, this is my personal YouTube channel. Uh, thumbs up if you're watching. Subscribe if you have not. Uh, let's see. We're going to get to all of the questions you guys had in the thread that I put up on the community tab here on YouTube.com slash Luke Thomas. Uh, and we'll get to those now. So without further ado, let's get... I do have some announcements, but we'll get that party started. Mantenal. Uh, right there. All right. Uh, a couple of housekeeping notes, as always. Number one. Um, I have to call it quits today at around 4 o'clock. You might be like, oh, well, Luke, you're going to cut it short. No, I'm only going to extend it. Sort of two problems I'm up against here. One, this live chat is getting longer and longer, which I'm okay with. I only say it's a problem but in the sense that I have to solve it because, um, you know, check out my hook while the DJ revolves it. Is that it? But the point being is uh, that I don't want I'm – not, I'm, not, I'm not in any way opposed to making it shorter, but it was, you know, it was about 75 minutes when I, when I took it back over to the Morning Combat channel and then I brought it back. And we brought back the super chat. It just got a lot longer, which is okay, but I got to break it up. So then tomorrow what I'll do is if you have a super chat question today, which by the way, again, you are certainly under zero obligation to do that. But if you do, uh, I will get to another, I will get to it with a new video tomorrow. Uh, my kid is in need. She's fine, but it's a routine, med well, not routine, but it's a medical checkup. Um, she's had just a really, really rough week, but I think she's on the mend. And I'm pretty happy about that. We have to get her looked at, so I have to go. There's just no other time in the day. I don't want to record this earlier, but then I had to do podcasts for Morning Combat to pre-record. It's a long story, and okay, but I appreciate your understanding with that. Uh, is the first thing I would say. Um, let's see. So yes, there'll be uh, there'll be a video tomorrow. Uh, I don't know if it'll be live or not. I'll have to figure that part out. But we'll have a video tomorrow with all the extra stuff that gets out. Also. I have been telling you guys about this. It's not really all that pertinent, but I've brought it up with, to you, and so I feel like I have to be honest and tell you uh, where things are at. I'm pretty happy with this milestone, but I recognize it doesn't really mean a whole lot in the end. So, obviously, during the pandemic, your boy packed on a few extra LBs, and I've been working pretty hard at getting them off. Um, the bad news is, well, I'll start with the good news. The good news is, uh, as of today and i think uh, I'll, I'll have an even more tomorrow but um because this is actually of, as of last week but as of today as i speak to you now i know affirmatively i'm down 30 30 is what i 30 pounds is what i've lost uh which is not a ton uh, believe it or not but it's at least a nice start this basically puts me back where i was more or less towards the beginning of the pandemic um that you're like oh jesus christ you put on 30 during the pandemic yeah dude it was bad it got out of hand. So, um, the bad news is that, like, I just have so much further to go. But for anyone who has been following uh, this chapter of my life, uh, it can be done. It can absolutely be done. I'm in the process of it. Steady as she goes. I'm not trying to race. I don't want to get up in here and every week it's like, oh, it's another five. It's another seven. I'm not trying to do the fastest, biggest loser thing. I'm just trying to sort of live a very maintainable, steady set of parameters that I can live with and before with and it's working uh but you know the only sort of other ingredient there is it takes time the other part is it's like when you're constantly in a caloric deficit it is hard to get strong jesus christ if it's not impossible for certain people and i have really struggled with like maintaining strength as it just the weight just keeps coming off so um so yeah give you guys an update on that i want to be as as uh 
forthright as I can. You're asking what the ultimate goal might be. I don't know, man. I think I got a ways to go. Double this, maybe triple. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know really where it ends, but I know I'm not there. So there you go. Okay. With that in mind, let's get to your questions and then we'll call it uh, a podcast. All right. And thank you for uh, watching. I greatly appreciate it. All right. Community tab. Let's go. By the way, if you guys noticed that the picture on the community tab was last week, someone asked me about Canelo going up to potentially cruiserweight <laughs> and taking on Makabu. And I was like, yeah, there's no way that would ever happen. And then that's exactly what he wants to happen. So um, one more reminder about this, and I'll turn it off for folks who are watching on the video. One more reminder about this. I've said this before. If you've watched the live chat for a while, you've heard me say this before, but it's worth reminding for anybody who might be new, which is that you know, the live chat is controlled by me in the sense that I'm the one that fields your questions. I read them, I answer them, I give you my opinion. But the reality is when you think about it, it's much more of a, it, when it works the way it's supposed to anyway, it's actually much more of a conversation. Um, because here's a clear case where the other person knew much better. And then through this process of call and response and then, you know, sort of fact checking afterwards and trying to be transparent about that as well. Uh, it turns out you guys were right and I was wrong. So that's going to happen frequently. And I'm okay with that because it's just going to make us all kind of better. And it's actually the sort of circular process that gets us to where we want to go, right? So sounds like a bunch of BS, but it's really quite true. All right. First question. Hi, Luke. Do you believe Charles Oliveira is being underestimated both against Dustin Poirier and the lightweight division as a whole? Probably yes. I understand he fought for a vacant title and doesn't have the strongest schedule compared to other contenders. But he has certainly shown an elite skill set and displayed big improvements in his striking power and grappling over the years. I think the issue that Charles Oliveira has is that he grew up before our eyes. And that's a good and a bad, right? The good is that certainly we have a sentimental view of him. We recognize, the for folks who've been around, of course, we recognize the totality of his journey and how hard it has been and how much he has struggled, but how much he has succeeded equally and certainly much more, actually. Um, so you have a certain bond with him. You have an awareness of him about the breadth of what he has done. But I think the thing that might be costing him a little bit is that he might still be living in the shadow of some of his previous shortcomings. I mean, you go back to the fight with Max Holloway, and now you're like, oh, right, well, Max is Max. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he kind of got out of that fight pretty quickly. He had a reputation, you know, not as like, not in the worst way, but that if he got really pushed, is he a quitter? Um, how's his chin and sturdiness above it all? Like, there's a lot of questions about defensively how sturdy he can be and how much of a, a, a fire he can walk through. Like, we obviously know from an offensive standpoint, when he's dictating and he's dealing, people are in big, big trouble. But what about when the tables have turned? And because of that, like, if you pull up his record here, let me pull it up just for the sake of accuracy, if I may. So if you pull up his record... I actually want to pull up his numbers, too. I like reading those better. What you get is... Yeah, I mean, strikes absorbed per minute. Not super high. 3.01. little high. A little high. Not crazy high. But strikes landed per minute, 3.26. I mean, he's basically even. You know, he's 50-50. And I think that has hurt him a few times. Now, he hasn't lost in a while... But he had the losses to Paul Felder where he just got hammered into the mat. He had a loss to Ricardo Lamas where um, he got guillotine choked. He had a loss to Pettis where he got guillotine choked. He lost to Max Holloway when the whole neck weird thing he did. Frankie Edgar gave him a, a bit of a beat down. Cub Swanson knocked him out. Um, Donald Cerrone KO'd him inside the first round. 
Uh, Jim Miller knee barred him. I mean, I mean, you could just go on and on and on. Now, th- none of those names are bad. I mean, listen to the names we're bringing up here. Felder. Oh, jeez. I mean, are you kidding me? Felder. Uh, Lamas. Lamas was a top contender in his day. You know, title contender. Uh, Pettis. Holloway. Edgar. Swanson. Cerrone. Uh, Miller. Like, either champions or people who were right at the top. Not, not. Not too shabby. Now, of course, his win streak is Guida, Giagos, Miller, who he got revenge on, um, David Tamer, Jared Gordon, Kevin Lee, Tony Ferguson, and then Michael Chandler, although he got pushed to the brink with Michael Chandler. So there's a question of, like, again, offensively, you know a lot of what you have. Defensively, is he still the guy that got knee-barred and knocked out and, and whatnot? Is he still that guy? Again, he's up a weight class, ultimately from where he began. Um, uh, and... Right, I think that's right. I don't know if he's always been a lightweight. I could be wrong about that. I'm pretty sure my memory serves. No, I could be wrong about that. I don't quite. Let me go back now. Now I got my. I have noticed that my memory has uh, really taken a dramatic turn for the worst here. Let me just verify this. Okay, even though I have stopped almost almost completely stopped drinking. Yes, featherweight debut and then lightweight. Of course, what am I saying? Um, you get the idea. So I think it's a few issues. Like he's grown up now. He does have sturdier defense in terms of like actually blocking and rolling with with shots. Being bigger probably helps absorb punches either on the jaw or even the body as well. Um, but I think he's living in the shadow of some of those pretty dramatic failures, whatever they're supposed to mean. I'm not saying that's fair. I'm not saying not in any way saying that's fair. To your point, underestimated. But I do think it is having an effect. Try to go with the ones that have the most thumbs up. Uh, Luke, to what extent did Conor McGregor have an impact in your career in MMA? I'm Irish and only really began consuming MMA media due to the McGregor effect around 2015. I came across your content for the MMA beat and the post-fight special, subsequently subscribing to MMA fighting for the live chat and your personal channel. I wonder if you can determine, though, through time series or demographic data as to how many subbed due to the McGregor effect. Jesus. And how many stayed subscribed now that he is not as popular as his peak run? In terms of those numbers, I couldn't give you anything specific. I have often told the story that like the first time I ever, I ever, it ever dawned on me that doing, I did MMA media back when very, almost all of it was for hobbyists. There were a few roles at like Full Contact Fighter, which used to be a website. Um, Inside Fighter used to be a website. There were some magazines doing some ad hoc work. Sure Dog was obviously a huge presence at the time. Uh, MMA Weekly had a big presence. Those, the MMA Weekly and Sure Dog were the two biggest when I got into the game. That might sound crazy now, but it really was true. But there were not many full-time gigs. They were very, very minimal in nature. Um, and so it was when Brock Lesnar fought Frank Mir that I saw this eye-popping amount of traffic, and I was like, holy smokes, like... With the amount of revenue you could make on this, I, I mean, could I do this for a living? Like, I, I really had that kind of moment. I was already too far along in the process by the time McGregor came around. I had, I had enough seniority that I wasn't reliant upon either McGregor being there or not being there. But it probably is fair to say that some of the bigger things I've ever done are probably centered on McGregor previews and post-fights and, and you name it. Um, you know his his numbers are extraordinary. He's the, the the most popular fighter I've ever covered. You know pound for pound, there may have been exceptions here or there in terms of what nights were bigger and and whatnot. But um, in general, he has been more or less the gold standard for what constitutes extraordinary MMA fandom. 
And yeah, MMA media absolutely benefits from that kind of a thing. Uh, there's just no denying. I mean, I don't mean to make it political, but it's just a sort of a way to understand things. Like you guys might have noticed, traffic and readership is down widely at a lot of mainstream media organs. And part of that is that their readers aren't constantly raging against the incumbent all the time. And again, I'm not here to say whether that's good or bad, but I'm saying that phenomenon is missing. And so their traffic has dropped off a cliff. All of that points to the fact that if you have a really popular person or a polarizing person or something in digital media, what no matter your beat, sports, politics, you name it, a really polarizing, popular person, again, it could be both, it could be one, can have a dramatic effect on um, revenue gains through traffic, through ad sales, through you name it. And there's just no denying that Conor McGregor has probably elevated or made several careers inside of MMA. No doubt about it. And I think MMA media should, and, and I think if you asked them, would be honest about it. But uh, I'm telling you now, I, I, I haven't done the work to measure that, uh, but it's, you know, it simply cannot be denied. BC claims to be an alpha male with BDE, but he doesn't like guns, has never killed anything for food, and drives, I'll put it, uh, a nice way of putting it, uh, a Melissa Etheridge mobile. Yeah, so maybe don't read too much into what he calls himself. All right. If Chandler was able to hurt Gaethje with a 1-2 multiple times in the first round, how are Conor McGregor's chances in a fight with Gaethje considering his straight punching ability? Not bad. Not, I mean, the fight with McGregor and Gaethje is interesting, right? Because you know McGregor is going to land. That left hand is going is, is gonna to find the mark, and probably more than once. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, how many does he have to land before the fight turns? How many? That's, the, that's what makes the fight incredibly exciting. I, I tend to think that, I mean, Gaethje's in this weird position, right, where... He's obviously, I don't want to take away from the real improvements he has made in his game. They are utterly tremendous. I mean, about this there can be, no doubt. But he still has a portion of his game, I think it's fair to say, where he relies a little bit on rolling with the punches or just eating them if he has to. Again, I think he has made a premium of limiting that, but he has not, and it's not possible, of course, to eliminate it altogether. And there's still a little bit of that that he kind of uses to do at least, at least uh, in the Chandler fight that was it was back in a way that was undeniably part of his, his game and so um you know if McGregor was able to bait that you would imagine that that could get real dicey for him for either guy down the line the the converse of that is that Gaethje even though he has taken an enormous amount of abuse over the course of his career less now but over the course of his career actually let's look up his numbers I would actually love to know that so, let's see here. Um, let's go. Do they have a common? Here we go. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, they don't have enough numbers for me to really say. But either way, either way, what you have to imagine is the boxing slash kickboxing of McGregor at range would do terrible things to him or the leg kicks. And by the way, he would land on McGregor as well. What that would do. What I'm trying to say about, uh, oh yeah, Gaethje. Let me see what they had. I went too far. Here we go. Here we go. Gaethje strikes absorbed per minute. You ready for this? So first of all, Gaethje has a negative differential. So he eats more than he lands. Um, and his strikes landed have gone down significantly, even though he is doing better 
you know, the the Nurmagomedov fight notwithstanding, right? Because he's knocking him out quicker. There's not, you know, he doesn't have to do as much work to get a much better result. But nevertheless, his strikes absorbed per minute are 7.81. That is as high as I've probably ever seen it. I mean, that is an, that is an enormous amount of abuse. Uh, at some point, man, the bottom is just going to drop out on that if he, if he does this long enough. That's not even like a criticism. That's just, you know, you ride that train long enough, dude. It gets to the destination. It does. Um, so, but that, but that, here's the thing. I, I keep wondering, like, is the next fight going to be the one where, you know, he has the Rich Franklin versus Chuck Liddell moment where it just all falls apart. I, it, it, it wasn't against Michael Chandler. It wasn't against Tony. It wasn't against Cerrone. It wasn't against Barboza. I mean, you keep thinking like it's going to happen and it just doesn't happen. So that's another factor you have to kind of involve in the previewing of it. But you, yeah, this, I, I think it's fair to be like, I don't know if the McGregor from UFC 205 is ever going to come back. I think that's pretty reasonable. Again, not declaring it never will, but I think it's pretty reasonable to wonder. At the same time, I don't know if he's done beating good fighters. Maybe. Maybe we'll see. But I, I think it'd be a little bit foolish to think, oh, well, McGregor you know, lost two in a row to Dustin Poirier. That's it for him. Maybe. Mm. I, I'll put it that I'll say that I'm skeptical of that. Max seemed to have some defensive, some defense liabilities, defensive, as I believe you've mentioned in his Yair performance that I did not see in the Cater fight. What did Yair do or Max not do that led to those avenues being opened? Was it a result of the diversity of attacks or range this time? The leg kicks were a big one, obviously, but even then he was landing elsewhere. I think a couple things, you know, he was, uh, partly was a, he, here was the thing. Um, I thought, I thought Yair had a great strategy. First of all, he came out like on fire, landing, accurate, hardcore, um, you know, and it's, so there's one thing, one is that, the unpredictability of Yair, right? Things look like they're going to be one thing and they, they land and end up being another, right? Not just the spinny shit, but like he's pretty good about changing the angles of punches and then putting things together in a way that is not what you would expect in those scenarios. He's quite gifted at that. I think, too, he plays with different ranges. So if you're standing even far apart from him, he'll eat you alive. Even in close, He's he can be you know, unpredictable and damaging. He's just got a lot of different weapons from different ranges that I don't think Max anticipated. The leg kicks were sort of a big key component to that. But on top of that, you know, he was landing upstairs a lot, A, to occupy Max's defense, but uh, other points just to sort of cause damage. And what really was sort of interesting was that he had enough damage. Whether you gave him both the first and second round, I don't know, but there was enough damage in there that by the time the third round started, he had to resort to something quite different, which was his takedowns. Now, what's interesting about the takedowns in the Max and Yair fight is that on the one hand, especially that third round, the way he was able to get them and hold them and even move to like a mounted position, in some ways, like really guaranteed the round for him. But what it removed was the Max effect. The Max effect is that he is, if there are five rounds or three rounds, whatever it may be, Max is going to be much more deadly by the fifth than he is the first, almost always. His game is involved in knocking at the door, seeing what kind of response it gets, changing the angle, changing the look, see what works, da-da-da-da-da, and then build upon that the second round, build upon that the third, and then you're cruising by the fourth. I think the fourth round tends to be where he is almost always the deadliest, um, or you know, end of the third, right around the fourth. Right around that 15-minute-ish mark, he becomes 
a nightmare. A lot of that changed here, and the reason that uh, it changed, obviously, with the, with the takedown, what I mean to say is Max wasn't able to invest in a way. Like, what he always does is he can he can absorb a lot of damage en route to figuring out what it is, but then by the third round, he's beginning to pour it on you and do a lot of damage and make you do a lot of work and make you make a lot of changes. What was interesting about the Yair fight was that because of the takedowns, Yes, of course, there were adjustments through the through the totality of the fight, but they got minimized and delayed to a big extent because a bigger part of that fight was on the ground, and Max couldn't make that general push that he does all the way through the course of a fight. Um, so it helped him win the rounds, but I think you saw a fifth-round surge from Yair. One, because Yair had just an incredible night, and to take nothing away from him, he was phenomenal. But two, I don't think Max put in all of the damaging volume that he normally does because usually when he does that, if there is a fifth round, he's in cruise control by that point. Dude, he was fighting for the round. You know, he was, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say his life, but he was holding on there a little bit, you know. So the takedowns were a blessing and a curse. Got him got him through some of the harder parts. Um, it definitely put in some ways. Yair on the back foot, but it also gave Yair a lot of life later in that fight that potentially, potentially, he may not have had. There's a bunch of... Okay, here we go. Someone's asking, what's it been like to train with Ryan Hall? You know, it's been really intermittent. Um, first time I ever walked in the gym, ever... Ryan Hall was a blue belt. I mean, that's how long ago it was. Long time, man. Um, and I don't think it was for very long. I remember when Ryan turned to a purple belt and they called him Ryangle because he was just burning through tournaments, hitting triangles on people. It was just, it was just wicked. Um, you know, but like, I don't think I've talked to him since his last fight. I should probably reach out. But, um, you know, I've just known him. We also have a mutual friend who also used to train with him and be an instructor at 50-50, Seth Smith. He has his own place now called Upstream BJJ. It's in Richmond, Virginia. Shouts to Seth Smith. If you're in the Richmond or RVA area, go check him out. You cannot go wrong. The best teacher uh, who's ever helped me by a million miles. So go check out Seth Smith over at uh, Upstream BJJ. But, you know, just through just always being in the same circles, just, you know, got to know him over the years and... Um, and Seth, I consider a good friend and, uh, yeah, I consider Ryan a friend in, in that, and maybe not like my best friend anything like that, but, um, you know, I've just watched his journey from almost its very beginning, almost. And, you know, people have asked me like, who are the best guys you ever roll with? Ryan's one of the best guys, Marilla Santana. Like, you know, when you get to going against guys at that level, you can't do anything to them. <laughs> like you can establish a grip and then. You know, usually if you're on top, it's ass over tea kettle. You're getting flipped or they're getting to your back. Or When guys are that good, unless you're on that level, like the world-class level, like you can't do anything to them. Like nothing happens. It's, it's, it's like the craziest shit ever. Uh, I'm, again, I'm trying to find the ones that have – there's a bunch that have no thumbs up. I don't know how good they are. Uh, what effect does weight cutting have on the longevity of a fighter's career? Are heavyweights able to make to, to make a to fight into their forties because it's rare heavyweight cuts weight or other other factors of play? Like anything, there's always going to be a combination of factors. Heavyweight is going to benefit a lot because you know speed can be a premium, but I think with the selection of athletes that you have, it 
you know, the occasional one that's going to have speed is going to go really well, but you don't necessarily have to have it to do well at that weight class, which is the interesting part. So like a lot of athletic gifts that fade late aren't necessarily as relevant. Talent pool can be weak. There's a lot of things that are the issue there. Cutting weight's a big part of it. You know, in terms of the longevity of a fighter's career, it's just a question about what kind of damage it does to shorten it. So the better question is what kind of damage does it do over the course of time to affect either someone's quality of life or professional endeavors. I had a I had a conversation once with Chris Lieben, and uh, he told me he's on medication the rest of his life because he completely wrecked his endocrine system, which you know regulates your hormones. Uh, done. Doesn't work. He 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 damaged it so so badly that it just doesn't work anymore. Now what he did to do that, whether there were other genetic factors at play, you know only he could tell you and his doctor could tell you, but. I remember him telling me that, being like shocked. I'd actually never heard that because I'd heard certainly about kidney issues. You hear a lot about kidney issues. You hear about some heart issues as well. Um, you can hear about, um, I guess I would hear about some hormonal imbalance, but I guess I never really fully connected it that the entire ability of your body to regulate hormones could be as compromised to the point where you have to have medication just so that it can you know, work even relatively normally. Um so it can do a ton of damage, and it can do damage. I think even cognitively, if, you know, because the issue is, I mean, understanding the da- the dangers of weight cutting. It's not just that they cut all that weight, weigh in, and then rehydrate, which is bad enough just to deprive the body at that level, but then to you know have a partial rehydration in many cases, and then go fight someone with your fists in a cage. You're doing a lot of extra damage all the way around. That. Uh, is you know over the course of time depending on how badly you have done it can be <clears throat> extremely ruinous i mean you can do s- lasting quality of life damage to your vital organs that's a real thing you can do i will say this though it's something we're thinking about no one is in favor of extreme weight cutting i am not telling you i'm okay with extreme weight cutting i am not okay with extreme weight cutting however there is a lot of weight cutting that i see that does not appear to result in long-term damage. Again, some of this is the result of better modern best practices, you know, cutting less weight. But people are like, oh, let's eliminate weight cutting from the sport. I don't even, first of all, I don't even know how you would do that. Eliminate weight cutting fully? I mean, people are going to sweat if they jump rope. How do you eliminate weight cutting fully? I mean, again, there's going to be hydration methods that will give you some, some uh, better indication. But what I just mean to say is, I don't think the goal should be to eliminate all weight cutting. I don't really have a problem, to be honest with you, with uh, minor to even moderate amounts of weight cutting. That seems to me like it's not necessarily great, but not a big deal. Most of the time when people cut weight, there isn't necessarily an issue. It's the ones that cut a lot of weight for one individual instance or cut a lot of weight over the course of time. That's where you begin to get problems. So like when we talk about the weight cutting problem, I don't even know how, and by the way, do you guys see, uh, I I could be wrong about this, so if I've got this wrong, by all means correct me, but someone sent me a screenshot, I believe, of Mike Dolce doing a chat on the underground, which was originally called MMA.TV, but even before that had a different name, I think, but now it's called MixedMartialArts.com, and he, he was asked about one's hydration testing, and I think he said that like the protocols were so loose that there was no way that the guys who were apparently on weight were on weight, or rather that um, 
you know, there was no way to, to in any way gauge the accuracy of the methods because they were so lackadaisical. I don't want to put words in his mouth, so it'd be better to double check with him for sure. Um, shouts to Mike, he's a great guy. But um, you understand what I'm saying. Like, people are like, oh, one's got to figure it out. One hasn't proven a fucking thing. Nothing. They've proven nothing. Again, I'm not telling you their system is fraudulent, but they haven't proven a thing about that. Obviously, you have a better system with NCAA wrestling because in the 90s, they lost three wrestlers due to complications from weight cutting, severe weight cutting, and they do a hydration testing method, but I think the situation there to get that done is a little bit more difficult than folks imagining in terms of like applying that to independent contractors. So long story short, what I would say is I don't really care about minor to moderate weight cutting. I really, I'm sorry, I just don't. It's when in, it's the excessive one. So like to me, it's let's let's stop excessive weight cutting and then just we don't have to celebrate the other part of weight cutting, but we don't have to like think it's a scourge. I don't think it's a scourge. What's happened to female MMA referees? Feels like we haven't seen one in a long time. Secondly, when fighters are being checked before they enter the cage, why don't female officials check women and vice versa? I think it's just a supply and demand issue. Now, there could be a question about whether or not qualified women are applying for these jobs and good old boy networks at various state commissions. I mean, would it surprise you to know that like certain states are just not going to accept anyone new for any like capricious, stupid-ass reason that they come up with? It you know shouldn't surprise you to learn that. At the same time, you know, people always like, oh, I don't like what Herb's doing. Okay, I'm not here to say that Herb is above criticism or any referee is above criticism, but like... Dude, it's a volunteer army. There's no draft. You get whoever just decides to walk through your door. Some states are not great about identifying those people, training them up, and then putting them in new roles. No doubt about it. There's a role that commissions play individually on not doing the things that they need to do to get better officiating um, done in their state, including the, the right personnel. At the same time, you must understand, dude, how many women are walking through the door being like, I would like to referee combat sports events between men. It is extremely rare. Let me show you something if I can. So here is, I don't know if I can show you this or not, but I'm going to try and find it. What would you guess the audience, like in all honesty, what would you guess the audience is uh, in terms of uh, male versus female for like um, my channel? What would you imagine? I'm trying to find the exact number. I can tell you what. Oh, here it is. Audience. Okay. Let me see if I can. Here, I'm going to take a screenshot of this. I'm going to show it to you just to help you understand. This is how you should understand MMA fandom. You're like, why don't we see, like, for example, why don't we see more female MMA journalists? Which, by the way, fewer barriers to entry for that in certain ways, right? Because you can just start up a Twitter account and whatever. I want you to look at this. This is who watches my channel, right? This is who watches my channel. And by the way, this is what it looks like across MMA. It's, it's not much different anywhere else. Can you see that? Let's see if you can see that. <laughs> and you can see my cracked phone. I haven't fixed it yet. Uh, 98%. 98%, I would guarantee you at state commissions, 98, probably higher than that, 98% of the people who walk through your door looking for jobs are not women. And so there's a question of like, why aren't there more? Could we do more to have more? Again, are states doing what they're supposed to be with the women who do come through their door? There's a lot of questions about how that's being handled. But one thing you should know is, and I always say this too, like, dude, you know, I'm not looking, I'm not looking for like, oh, 
um, we have to have one of every kind of person because we have to make sure that we have the exact view and that per, that, that that one kind of person from that one demographic. They're going to speak for all people. It's not that I'm looking for that, but like, dude, you know, getting more people's perspective generally gives you a better and wider perspective. There could be limits to that, but you know, in general, that's the thing, dude. I can't. Is there a? I go to boxing events. There, there maybe you see some in boxing. In MMA, I don't know if I have ever seen. Literally, I don't know if I've ever seen a black female journalist. Ever. I don't know if I've ever seen one. Is it really the true that, like, they don't want to cover MMA as a profession? Well, on the one hand, you just saw the numbers. <laughs> Not many of them. On the other hand, none of them? Never? I got Karen Bryant, I guess. Uh, actually, take that back. Karen Bryant. Karen Bryant would be one. Um, okay, but that's one. And I apologize, Karen Bryant, for not thinking of her top of mind. She has been in the game a long time. So I was trying to think about, like, some of my more recent uh, travails. But, uh, okay, she's one. So there's one. What else you got? Like, you got just one. Like, it's just not many. Or, you know, pick any sort of, you know, version of the demographic which you're looking for. Again, it's getting better over time. And it's not like you have them all of a sudden. You have, like, you know, the, the, the world's, you know, purchase on wisdom. But it's always about, like, it tells you who's watching – who is part of your community? You ever heard MMA fighters talk about like their fans, like women never DM them? The only people who ever DM them are always like dudes who are looking for autographs or whatever. That is your audience. Your audience is that. 98% men. Um... Okay, here we go. Boy, that's a great question. Luke, if Chemayev beats Gilbert Burns, again, this is theoretical, very handedly, UFC would probably give him a title fight. Now, what if he wins, but it's a split decision? What if 10 minutes into that fight, we see Chemayev start shooting sloppy takedowns, and his output slows up from fatigue, and Gilbert takes over from there, but still loses the fight on points? Kind of like a Zabit versus Cater type situation. Although, you know, Cater came on strong in the third, but he lost the first two pretty clean. Oh, okay, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's fine. Would they still give him a title fight then since he beat the number two guy, but shows holes that are still developing since he's new? Or do they book him in a fight night main event to get him more prepared for five rounds? Because if there is a champion out there that demands good cardio of their opponent, it's got to be competitive. It's got to be Usman. See, so the, the central tension in this question is what happens if he has a win so good that there's nothing left for him in terms of the name value than the actual title shot itself, but the manner in which he achieved it was not suspect, like he's the rightful winner, but that it gives you great pause about the next chapter and his meritocratic... Um, while the meritocratic qualifications are there, the actual stuff behind that meritocracy isn't. Right. <laughs> um, it's a great question. It's a really great question. My guess is if he beats Gilbert, they're still going to give him one. But at that point, and if it, go, if, it, if it goes along the contours that you have described, then you know you would you might like you might like Usman's chances, right? But I do think they would give it to him. I don't think they would deny it. It would have to be a, like, you know, 
it would have to be a, I mean, that would have to be a hell of a third round to make them not give it to him. You know, and at that point, you're talking about ten eights, in which case he could get, he could get. Um, you know, what would be funny is if he got like a ten eight first round, like Gilbert barely survived, and then Hamzak still gets a, like a solid ten nine, like no doubt about it, right? And then comes out gassed as shit, and then takes a ten eight in the third. You know, so the ten eights uh, cancel themselves, so he still wins, but like. You know, you got 10 aided like that. What if what if that happened where he got 10 aided, so to speak, in the third round of their fight or whatever? Um, but I will say this: if he faded in the fifth round of a fight, that would be noteworthy. Like you'd be like, "Well, okay, well we know Usman's not going to fade in the fifth, or in all likelihood, probably he's not going to fade in the fifth. But you know, he still went four solid rounds plus. Like he could work on that. You know." It's the it's like if you can't make fifteen minutes of cardio, especially if the two first rounds you have the wind at your back. Well, then you're dealing with like a major indictment, right? Um, but what would he, what would happen if he had a ten eight ten nine then lost ten eight in the third? That would be interesting. That would be interesting. Um, let's see. Okay, let's see. Here's a good one. Okay. <laughs> Some questions are like, are you opposed to trimming your beard? I'm not opposed to it, but it's not like... I mean, I, don't, I will say, I candidly, I never understand like why the viewers care so much, but some of them do. All right, not the question. The question is this. I saw your video last week about takedown criteria, and I was wondering if any judges have been shown the, quote, takedown and asked their opinion. Well, let me explain to you. I have given up on that because they routinely just say no. So perhaps, but none that I'm aware of. In truth, this person writes, it doesn't matter what fight metric deems a takedown. It only matters what the judges think. That is true, but not in the way you might imagine. How often are these judges getting courses to watch and understand new techniques and who gives them the courses to understand MMA scoring criteria? Keep up the great work you post, amazing and insightful content. Okay, I appreciate the, the nice thing that you wrote. And also, it's actually a really good question. I did not like my video. I watched it after the fact. Well, I watched it before I even posted it several times. And then even then I was like, I didn't explain it right. First things first. Fight metric is not trying to tell judges what to care about. Remember, they don't even get stats at all. They don't get to see significant strike tallies. They don't get to see who scored three of four takedowns or whiffed on zero of five, who had targeting. or They don't get any of that stuff. So statistics is not how judging is done. And that should be understood. Now, again, you can sort of like formalize a, a process in your mind for like, you know, counting substantive volume and quality and whatnot. But as it relates to fight metric or that the company's called 3027, as it relates to their statistics, judging has no relationship to it. It doesn't work that way. Nor does fight metric want to do that, nor are they asking that process of themselves. Understand what fight metric is trying to do. Okay. They are from a general perspective. Forget the takedown, just from a stats perspective, what are they trying to do? They are trying to come up with a system of counting things in MMA that matter. That's what they're trying to do. They want to count what matters. 
uh, especially for offense, obviously, but defense too. But what matters? They are trying to figure that out. And, they, and, and I am telling you, they consulted expert after expert, fighter after fighter, coach after coach, informed opinion after informed opinion. They went and looked and talked to a bunch of people about what mattered, what's control, how does that control get established, blah, 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 blah. So what they're trying to do is solve a statistics problem, not inform a judging question. Two separate things. Number one, what Fightmetric is trying to do um, beyond just count things that matter is in so doing, they're trying to look at MMA with a fresh lens where when they ask themselves what they're looking at, what matters and what matters enough that we can count it because it has this effect over time. Okay, and so they want to get rid of stuff and not count things that don't matter, and they want to count the stuff that does. And they're giving a fresh set of eyes to it. So that's the first sort of under think, uh, preamble to underline this entire discussion. They're, they're, they're judging and fight metric are not... We use it after the fact to inform our judgment, but that's in real time not in any way how judging works. Here is what ultimately 3027 or fight metric is doing as it relates to the takedown. If a judge wants to look at what Colby has done and decide that it was a takedown and that that matters to them, although a takedown by itself isn't necessarily supposed to be a scoring position, like right, the fact that he got it, like what does that like what does that signify? Like would that change the way you scored around? Was that effective grappling if you, even if you think it was the deck, the textbook definition of a takedown, like you got him down, but to what end? So that's up to the judges to decide that. That's not what Fight Metric is worried about. They are making two claims. Claim number one that whatever the wrestling definition is of MMA, it is, excuse me, whatever the wrestling definition is of a takedown, that definition is not sufficient for needs of doing statistics in MMA. It doesn't help them very much because ultimately what you will get to are positions that 3027 believes technically count as a takedown, but don't signify anything important about MMA. It doesn't mean anything really for MMA. If it's, uh, I mean, if, if uh, in certain cases where it's a wrestling takedown, but for them short of what it would mean for MMA purposes, you may not agree that the one with Colby and uh, Kumaru is one such case, but you could probably imagine there's going to be some scenarios where it might meet a wrestling definition, and you're like, what the fuck does that have to do with MMA? But the first thing you have to accept is, forget about what ultimate definition Fight Metric provides. The first insight is they do not believe that the wrestling definition of a takedown should be strictly applied to MMA that there should be a reinterpretation of that rule. We can debate about how it should be reinterpreted, but that's the first claim they're making. And frankly, I think if you accept the first premise, which I do, I don't think that the wrestling definition of a takedown um, is sufficient for MMA purposes, and frankly for statistical purposes on top of it, I don't think it works. It doesn't speak to the broader reality of MMA in the way in which we understand it. As long as you accept that premise, most of the complaints, I feel like, go away. What they have then decided was um, that there is a control position that has to be established for, uh, you know, a, a prolonged or, you know, um, a, a period of time 
where, yes, it can meet the definition of controlling or uh, restraining power, three points of contact, blah, 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 blah. But what really matters is, is this a position from which meaningful MMA offense can be had, either effective grappling or effective striking? Because otherwise, what are they counting? Some specific to wrestling achievement that ultimately bears no or very little re resemblance to what matters in MMA. Like once you begin to understand what, what fight metric is trying to reframe, you begin to see what they're talking about. If you just borrow, you can count that, but like, what are you, here's the problem. Now you're going to begin to get count, count things that are takedowns according to the wrestling criteria. And you're like, okay, but when we're adding up takedowns for statistical purposes, if there's no meaningful MMA offense that ever comes from these things, why the fuck are we counting them? Right? You want to count the things that matter for baseball, right? How many times do you get on base? And when you get on base, do you get on just singles? Do you, how often do you hit doubles? How many times do you hit home runs? How many times do you strike out? Can you steal a base? If you're a pitcher, right? What is your earned run average? Blah, blah, blah. You can go on the things that matter are what they want to count, and the things that don't matter are the things they don't want to count. Now, baseball is different because I'm sure it's borrowed from other games, but you know, MMA is this brand new sport that clearly pulls from all these different sports. It's hard to reconcile how much you count one thing versus another, how much should certain definitions of various techniques from composite sports inform the judgment and the definition of what we count in full-on MMA. These are not very simple things to figure out. But the, the first insight being... Whatever the wrestling definition is, it can have a lot of broad overlap with the MMA definition, but they're not identical. In, in wrestling, you are trying to show who is the superior wrestler via wrestling. That's not what you're trying to do in MMA. You might want to use wrestling to score effective damage or have effective grappling, but that's not the same thing as trying to show who's the better wrestling vis-a-vis -vis, or better, better wrestler vis-a-vis -vis wrestling. Two different modalities completely and so to me their core insight is quite right and you can quibble with their definition after the fact but once you make that connection that their reassessment of the takedown is entirely fair and very much frankly a necessity to me it's like I don't know what people are complaining about after the fact do you want to say that Kumaru got out wrestled um, in a very specific albeit fleeting moment yeah, you can say that. Like, Colby, to me, dude, like, Colby doesn't need fight metric to call that a take. I mean, it would have been nice because, you know, how else do you get something that represents the fact that he had this moment where he kind of had a brief little window, but he had his way with Kamaru in the wrestling department. It's not reflected in the stats. Maybe we need more stats. Maybe there's another way to look at it. Fair enough. But, uh, you know, you don't need that takedown to know, like, he was very much in it to win it from the wrestling. Like, they're peers when it comes to wrestling. Like, if Kamaru has an edge, it's not a huge one, you know? And even that edge is debatable. Like, you can make a case that Colby has the edge, honestly. Um, even though he wasn't get, able to get a takedown, uh, you know, even beyond just that one scenario, however debatable it may be. So that's what's happening here. It's got nothing to do with judging. Judging is an unrelated art and act. All fight metric can worry about is, what do we need to measure and how do we define it? And how much are we relying on definitions within composite sports as our own when those don't really make sense over time? That might be broad overlap, but the Venn diagram will have a little bit of difference. And what you have to understand is why and what that means. That.
is the way I should have explained it. I, maybe that's not better, but I feel like that should be a little bit clearer. We hear the phrase technical striker often. I'm curious, how do you define this phrase and why do people take the time to say technical striker versus just saying a striker? A striker is generally implied to mean someone who prefers to win fights on their feet versus not. They can be quite good. A technical striker is someone who you can just tell is exercising a great degree of intentional strategy and intentional tactical choice throughout the course of the fight. Now, some of that can be free-flowing with muscle memory, but you'll see they're thinking through problems in ways where they've got a whole broad set of abilities built on what is considered to be textbook to give them life and ability in those scenarios, to keep them safe, obviously, for the longer totality of the fight, but they're thinking through things intentionally, and you can piece that together with um, how they act. Someone's asking me again, like, any thoughts on the constitutional amendment question from Wednesday's Wheel of Death? Also, I live in Capitol View, not quite as swanky as the wharf or Navy Yard. No, not quite as swanky as the wharf or Navy Yard. That is true. But, you know, I mean, well, how far is your, I mean, can you throw a baseball and hit Nats Park? Probably, right? Like, you're not too far. Well, now you're a little further away from that, actually. But, you know, you're not doing too, too, too bad over there. But, uh, okay, because you're a little bit too further east, I think. All right, all right. Um, no, not really. I mean, listen, it's not like I've... I mean, I've tried to do as much... I, I try to read often as... I mean, you guys know I read like crazy. But a question of like, what would you do to change the Constitution? These are questions you have to like think about directly and then like spend some time looking into to have anything worthwhile to share. It's not that I have no ideas, but that I, have, I have no ideas that I'm comfortable with sharing. I've, I've not given this great consideration. I don't think anything I say should be... Uh, listen to on that. Not 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 anytime soon. Is Twitter blocking random followers? I've never tweeted and was blocked. Well, I doubt that. But you can hit me up. Luke, do you do you ever think a scoring system should be put in place that reviews footage post fight in order to capture a more accurate strike count, control time, etc.? Scoring system. That's what we already have one. Or do you think the instant gratification of announcing a winner is too enticing for audiences and traditional for brand? Well, for sure, the fight doesn't work if, you know, it takes some time in the review booth to look it over. I mean, these things have to move along pretty quickly. So just from a logistical standpoint, I don't think it's very feasible. But I have offered an idea about this subsequently where, like, if I feel like you should use the football rule. If you get a bad referee call... Right, and it ends. Uh, the fight ends on a referee call that uh, video evidence can s show to be false. I think commissions should be much more accepting of a process where that can be done. I'll say that. Uh, Luke, story behind your long-standing Twitter profile pic. I want to change it because it's not all that accurate. Um, it's just old, and you know. Uh, I have aged like it's a contest in the intervening time, but that's a rooftop in Bogota, Colombia. Um, it's the rooftop of my wife's uncle, cousin? Who owns that place? Uncle. And um, there's a rooftop there, 
Bogota is a giant city, and a lot of people have rooftop stuff going on over there. And uh, people live in high-rises and, like, apartments. Like, it's, you know, it's a very dense place. And uh, there was one day where the, like, you can see from the rooftop all of the different, you know, buildings and parts of the city. And uh, behind us was this mountain, was, you know, it's the Andes. So it's the mountain range. And uh, there was a fog that had hung just over, like, half of them. And it was, like, you know, obviously a sunny day is better, but it was just a beautiful, I mean, unbelievable shot. And I was just really happy at that moment. I was, I was, that was the last time. Oh, last time. That's, that's not true. But uh, I was really happy in that moment when that picture was taken. Ready to start BC's training camp. Leave him alone. Do we maybe need to stop obsessing over the amount of damage Max takes and start accepting his ability to withstand punishment is as much a strength as his boxing and cardio? Granted, it's never good to take any head trauma, but his strikes absorbed per minute numbers don't take into account a lot of the head strikes absorbed are to the legs. It's true. And he's been mainly fighting the top featherweights in his era for about eight years straight and winning dominantly. Of course he's going to get hit. I think people think his chin is just going to go the first minute he gets dropped. If he does, remember he dropped Alex twice in their second fight. Uh, it's true. Of course, him dropping someone else is irrelevant when you're asking a question about his chin. Listen, man, everyone makes a big deal about the fact. Uh, listen, I love Max. Max is, a, I, I, I'm not saying this to like, nothing I ever say, or, ever. I try really hard, and I do mean this. Like, I've got any number of failures, including probably on this issue too. But I will say, it does matter to me that when we give analysis of a fight or a fighter, we're not trying to do it from a level of personal either protection or animus and i'm sure we fail time to time i'm sure we do we're humans we're gonna but like when i talk about max's damage i'm not saying it to undercut it i'm saying it because i'm worried about it like i'm legitimately like fuck dude this guy takes a lot of abuse now you're right some of it is distributed to the body a lot of it is distributed to the legs like that's not great either but okay it's not the same as head trauma but he's taking a lot of head trauma too and the fact that he doesn't hard spar is awesome but he's only 29 years old. I don't know which way this is all going to go. I, you know, I think he's going to get a third fight with Alex, and I think he can win that fight. You know, but I don't know if he can fight for like five more years. I don't. He's been fighting for a long time, and you can't take damage like he's taken and go too too much longer. It's just not possible. Like, should we obsess over it? Well, I don't know what you mean by obsess. Like, should we be reasonably concerned about it? Yeah, I think we should. I'm, I bet he is. Max is no fool. You know, I bet he's making a calculated decision about how much longer he wants to do this and what he wants to see before he bows out, both in terms of accomplishments and, and any kind of sign of physical decline. Dude, he wants to be around for his family. Like, you know he does. You know he does. But, dude, it's not – I don't think it's unwarranted at all. I, I get what you're saying. Like, maybe, you know, panic buttons you can put away. Fine. But, dude, even if you want to discount all of the body damage and just go to the head, even those have been a lot, dude. And he's not fought light punchers. He has fought, I mean, you go back to the Dustin Poirier fight. <laughs> Dude, I mean, he got his bell rung a number of times in that. And these five-round fights, man, these guys come out looking like they're in fucking car crashes that they had to get the jaws of life to pull them out of. Like, should we be concerned about that? Yeah. Yeah, we should. Mm-hmm. We should. So, fair enough that, okay, it's not all head trauma. You're right. But it's enough that it still matters. Do a few more, a couple more. 
Has there ever been a combat sports moment, fight, interview, news, bit, blah, 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 that has moved you deeply or brought you to tears? Um, brought me to tears is actually a bad one. I feel bad. You guys remember Junior Albini? He was a heavyweight. Like that one time he had looked like he had the trunks on, looked like a diaper. That dude was so poor. He talked about before his UFC debut or something like that. He was so poor that the only toys he had for his daughter were shampoo bottles, empty shampoo bottles. You know, Jesus, that one got me. That one got me. Um, you know, there's poverty everywhere. There's poverty in this city. There's poverty all over this country. But, you know, if you've ever been to, like, really poorer parts of the world and you see what, like, poverty is like in really, really poor places, it is a – it is – it will leave you despondent, man. It will leave, it will leave you despondent. And he was articulating like some of what that. And of course, there's people poorer than him too. But he was articulating a, a level of poverty where, you know, as a father, you, you just you feel the weight of you know. And I'm not saying he should feel this way, but I, I can imagine he probably felt a degree of not just sadness for his daughter and his own state of his affairs, but um, for his humiliation that he couldn't provide more for a, a, this little child of um, sweetness and and glee. Even talking about it's kind of hard to be honest with you, you know. Um, now that I and this, this is that he even mentioned that before I was even a dad. Now as a dad, I'm like, dude, I can man, that'd be the first dollar I spend, you know. Um, and a good side, everyone never got to me. Like, ever made me feel up. Uh, I'll tell you what, man. I got moved. I talk about it all the time, dude. I talk about it all the time because it was just such a big, it had such a big impression on me. But, like, when Lamont Peterson fought Amir Khan here, I mean, if you guys don't know, Lamont Peterson and his brother were uh, in and out of foster homes. You know, uh, basically, Barry Hunter, I think, was their legal guardian and even adopted him, but certainly was like the man, the man in their life. But prior to that, when they were in and out of homes and, and, and literally living on the street, they talked about like in, you know, in Washington, D.C. is not Chicago or Toronto or something. But in the winters, it can get fucking cold here. I've seen it below zero a few times. You know, it gets chilly. And I've had three feet of snow in a single 48-hour uh, period here. Like, you know, you can get, you can get, can get bad winters. And uh, and uh, they were talking about like, at certain times in growing up where they would be walking down the street here flipping car handles hoping just to find a uh an unlocked car to sleep in for the night when it was snowing you know and he, these kids were like 10 and 11 you know and then when he goes in there and he kind of got the benefit of the judging a little bit there against Khan but like dude when you saw him raise up the belt and what it meant to him and what it meant to his trainer and what it meant to the city that was the best sporting event I've ever been to here that what maybe ever but like when I think of like you know uh what was on par? I've been to like playoff games for the Caps and stuff like that. That surpasses all of it for me. To why I was I was near the corner where he where Barry Hunter or I think it was Barry Hunter maybe his brother Anthony lifted him up after he was announced he won and uh, dude two times in my life I've seen athletes bring the city to well three times I've maybe even more than that but three times stand out to me like bringing the city uh, it's more than that too but I'll say this. Like when John Wall was big deal here with with Bradley Beal and um, 
there's a couple playoff runs, man, where they were they they were they had the city electrified, dude. RG three in 2012, 2013, whatever it was, he had the city on its feet. You know what I mean? And then when Ovechkin won the cup, he had the city on its. F- I mean, you, you remember you guys remember seeing like all the downtown shots? If you, if you don't follow hockey, you won't know this, but I mean, they you couldn't drive to the center of the city because it was thousands of people from the National Mall, which is the area between the the Senate Building and the and then and then the Washington Monument, and then like all the way up to like fucking like Logan Circle, just fucking people everywhere trying to get downtown to be near at the time the Verizon Center. Man, it was like electric dude when when Lamont Peterson beat Amir Khan in the city. I'm not gonna put it on that level, but to me and to a lot of people, that was a huge deal. Like the city was on its feet for him. Uh that was a big night. That was a big night. This is why, like, regionalism and, like, identity in combat sports, they just work so well, man. You see someone like you. You see someone from where you're from. You see someone, you know, it's not just... A, we like the ones that are nothing like us, too. We like learning about all the people who are nothing like us, and that's great, too. But, like, man, like, there's a there's a tribal core element to identity and how it layers over combat sports that is at once complex and at t- and more often than not though just totally simple and profound really profound um i will end on this one one thing about the max yair fight that everyone seems to be ignoring or sweeping under the rug is the fact that yair had Max shooting takedowns and looking to clinch like crazy. I looked it up myself, and Max shot more takedowns versus Yair than he shot in the last 13 fights combined. Max just doesn't go for takedowns. He's typically the one making his opponents shoot for takedowns. A couple of Max's takedowns even looked a bit rushed or panicky. In my opinion, all these takedowns and clinch attempts was a direct result of how much damage Yair was putting on Max. What are your thoughts? I think you are exactly correct. I think that is exactly correct. No doubt about it. What's the good about that? The good is that Max had another level of his game he could go to to win, right? Champions. That's what a champion does. You're, I, I, the thing that I'm the best at for, for some reason today just ain't working. Maybe the other guy's better. Maybe he's not. Maybe it's just not my day. Doesn't matter. Shit ain't going the way it's supposed to, at least not totality. I got to switch it up. I got to switch it up. And he did. And that wasn't perfect, but it got the job done. You know, that's what a champion does. That's what a champion does. Okay, uh, I think that's it for me. So as a reminder, if you left a uh, question on the Super Chat, I'm going to have a whole new video tomorrow. We'll do a main event preview as well. I'm sorry to keep doing just these live chats, but uh, better than be- better late than never, better than nothing, I, I certainly hope. Um, so with that in mind, thumbs up on this. Thank you so much for watching. I greatly appreciate all of you. And I'll be back tomorrow. More information in due time. Do the best.